I would get off the train at Jollymont in Melbourne and I would walk to Exhibition Street. And I can remember just having Beastie Boy sabotage just blaring through the headphones. And I felt I was about <laughs> 10 feet tall. I felt lighter, I felt stronger, and I was really, really excited to get that going. I knew that I was working towards something that was my calling or my purpose. What would it feel like to find your calling, your life's purpose? This week's guest explains exactly what it feels like, how he got there, and what he does every day to manage his performance energy. This episode's for you if you're struggling to listen to that voice inside your head that's asking for something more out of life. If you're a little bit curious like me and you love hearing from some super smart people, I think you'll get a lot out of this show. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life, and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I'll chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. My guest on The Thought Follower today is a leadership team performance specialist, an author, speaker, and executive coach, Adrian Belagin. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. How are you? Going well, thanks. I'd love to jump straight in your kind of central idea, and you've written a book with this title as well, this idea of teams that swear is something I love. Can you tell me more about that? Obviously, I'm pretty big on leveraging the potential of groups and teams. And when in 2019, I had this, this idea that I wanted to write a book that would help leaders simplify how they bring their groups together and achieve more. Uh, I spent 20 years working across Canada, Africa, and Australia. I worked on some great teams. I worked on some other teams that were a little bit more of a struggle. And if, if you jump on Google and do a search for how to create a great team, you'll get, I don't know, 4 billion results in 0.4 of a second or something crazy like that. And what I wanted to do was come up with something that was really simple and easy to use for leaders, but powerful in terms of uh, having a number of exercises to be able to go to. And, and if a leader was struggling with a team, instead of having to think about 12 different things that they could do, try and simplify mm. that. The title of the book was inspired by a teammate of mine. When I moved to Australia, I, I thought, or I found that the Aussies swore a lot more than Canadians. And don't get me wrong, Canadians can be pretty handy, particularly when we're playing ice hockey with the odd swear word here or there. But this colleague of mine, I just found, and I would give her a hard time. Like it was, it was in jest. She, she didn't do it in a bad way. It was always, always in a good way. And I would share with her, go, geez, you know, you're typical Aussie, you swear a lot. And she said, no, 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 it's good for you. And me being stubborn, I would do a little bit of research. And when I did some research on swearing, I found that we were both right. So, so it, it did demonstrate some of the research showed that Aussies were amongst the top five nations for swearing. Right. But the swearing and the, and the good things that come from swearing were also reinforced. There's a number of studies that talk about the benefits of swearing and one in particular around teams that swear more amongst each other have higher levels of trust. I thought, well, that's a pretty good hook to teamwork because trust is obviously pretty important. So that's, that's where the title came from. In, in some ways, I, I need to be careful. I'm not a huge swear. So mm -hmm. I'm, it's not like I'm advocating for the workplace to become a place of profanities, yeah. but uh, it's a fun way to, to get into, into the topic of how can we do together better. Yeah, and I guess to kind of clarify for people who may not have seen it, but the full title being teams that swear by each other, not about each other. 
Absolutely love that idea. As someone who's been in Aussie and global workplaces for a while, I think it's it's awesome. So was there a moment where you became really passionate about this and wanted to start this practice? How did you get into it? How did I get into it? So I spent, like I said before, Mitch spent 20 years working in corporate and I think I'd seen, in corporate I did a number of personal development and leadership development programs and when they would come in and do their thing, I was more interested in how they were doing it and how they were engaging and, and the different exercises that they would do to get us thinking in a different way. And probably around 2011, I started to think, hey, this is something that I should be doing. And mm. I did some executive coaching training. I started to put together a little bit of a plan about how this could look. And this is while I was still working in the corporate space. And this must have been in the early days when LinkedIn was, I don't know when, when LinkedIn kicked off, but I'd put something on there that's saying that I coach coaches. My thinking at that stage was that I wanted to support sporting coaches, professional sporting coaches to help them navigate, not so much the technical side of the business, but the people side of, of what they mm. do. And someone at my, where I was working at this time from HR sent me an email saying, hey, we saw something on LinkedIn, we'd like to talk to you about it. And my initial reaction was, oh, crap, am I in trouble here? You know, HR want to talk to me. And it, it, this is a great example, whereas if you've got a passion or something you really like, you don't necessarily have to leave the corporate space because HR spoke to me and said, tell us more about this coaching coaches. And I explained to them that I wanted to work one-on-one -on -one with people to help them get over hurdles and, and get closer to achieving the potential and the goals they set. And they said, well, look, we can't offer you any sporting coaches to do that, but would you be interested in doing some of that here? And as it turned out, they were looking to create a program for uh, people within the business who were identified as high potential and high performers. And they were looking for somebody to develop that program. So it became a little bit of a side project or passion project within the place where I was working. And then that just kind of lit the fire even further for me. Amazing. Then life happened. We had our third child. I got a new boss. That My job had changed a little bit. I was I was somewhat excited to do that. So I kept with my corporate job. But as my kids got older, I started to, in my mind, I wasn't walking the talk. I would okay. always ask my kids two questions. I'd say, what do you follow and who do you believe in? So the correct answers in my mind was, you know, what do you follow your dreams and who do you believe in yourself? And uh, as my kids got older, I, I felt a little bit like a hypocrite because I was just saying, mm. these are the things you should do. But I knew deep down that wasn't what I was doing. So finally, I made the decisions going, right, if I don't do this now, when will I do it? And I didn't have any plans in terms of client set up or I knew the space that I wanted to work in. But outside of that, I didn't really know how this was going to work, but figured I got to take the punt, be the right role model and, and haven't looked back since. That's amazing. So was there a moment when you had done it, when you felt like you were following your dream officially and believing in yourself? Yeah, I, I can remember when I let my manager know, and, and my experience in the corporate, particularly when I finished up, was very good. I worked with some f amazing leaders that I still stay in contact with today. Um, I still got very good friends from that, and, and a lot of the experiences I got, I'm very grateful for. But I can remember the day after I told my manager, I, was, I continued to work for two months before I finished up, and I would get off the train at Jollymont in Melbourne by the MCG, and I would walk exhibition street and i can remember just having beastie boy sabotage just blaring through the headphones 
and I felt I was about <laughs> 10 feet tall. It was just like, I don't know, I felt lighter, I felt stronger, and I was really, really excited to get that going. I could just remember that walk like it was yesterday. So from there, it was about, took a little little bit to kind of work out exactly kind of, well, you know, what my proposition was, what was unique mm. about me, because it's a little bit, there's a number of people who do what I do, but I can remember doing my first talk and I remember standing in front of about 23 people in a boardroom and they're all staring at me and we got people on the conference call as well joining. I thought, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> and it was, it was going, right, this is it. And it was scary. But also I think in my mind, I was going, right, the worst you can do is really stuff it up and you'll just get better the next time. And your first time, surely people would expect you not to be perfect. Yeah. I love that. It's amazing. Soundtrack to the change is very cool. <laughs> you talk in the book and kind of in your practice about this idea that people need to optimize their own performance energy, I think is a term that you use to have any chance of being successful, you know, in a professional environment. Sounds like that was sort of playing into a little bit of what, what you're experiencing there. What is performance energy and, you know, how do we go about, I guess, optimizing that? Simply put, performance energy is about knowing what gives you your energy and how do you make sure that that's part of your regular routine. That could be anything from four different types of energy, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, or what I call inner energy. A good example is, I think, walking down that, that park, down the path, listening to the Beastie Boys was an example of where my inner energy was through the roof because... I knew that I was working towards something that was my calling or my purpose. Hmm. So uh, a lot of the work that's done around the performance energy programs that I do is really giving individuals the, the chance to pause, reflect and reconnect with what they need to be at their best. Because rarely do we give ourselves permission to think about that for maybe more than five minutes. But once people get that opportunity to think about, well, what's really important to me? Where do I get my energy from? What are the things that drain me? Where am I at right now? And if I were to change, let's say, one or two things that would help me be at my best more often, what could that one or two things be? And how do I make sure that that becomes non-negotiable in my routines? What I love about it is it recognizes this idea that we're not someone different at work or we shouldn't be. You know, we're, we are who we are 24 hours a day and this idea of bringing your whole self to work is becoming more common and for me I'm a parent so any parent will tell you that your kids are kind of always part of your life whether you're in the office or at home or wherever they kind of are there's always an aspect of your personal self that that is coming through in work and so what I love about this performance energy idea is that it's not necessarily well what's a work thing that I need to do to unlock more energy or it's recognizing the fact that our personal situation and, and our personal life is a huge part of our performance at work. There's some fascinating research. There's a 10-year study that actually is the foundation for any business that is struggling to go, right, well, how much do we invest in our people in terms of making sure that their whole life or everything is going well for them versus, no, you come to work and that's you just need to deliver. The research showed that there was direct correlation to stock prices of organizations and leaders who were at their best, who reported that they're at their ideal energy levels more often than not. So I think from a personal perspective, it makes sense. You know, I feel better when I've got energy and I, I can deliver better work. But it it's in organizations' interest as well to support mm. their people 
to be that way. And and one of the exercises I talk about with with people when we're doing the performance energy workshops is we talk about the idea of emotional energy and that ability to be oneself and be authentic. And there's research out there that shows when people feel like they have to put on a work face versus mm. who they are at home, mm. that it takes up so much more energy. And there's a personality profile. I can't remember which one it's called, but it has to do, it asks you you know, a series of 80 questions. It says, when you're at work, are you more like this or are you more like that? Mm. And then it asks the exact same set of questions, but it says, when you're at home, are you more like this yeah. or are you more like that? And it spits out this report and it shows you this jagged line or sometimes a straight line, but essentially it comes back with the results, but it shows what you are like at work and at home. And if those two little graphs are complete opposites, meaning you're one way at work and you're a complete different way at home, the first question that that individual gets asked when reviewing the report is how tired are you? Hmm. And 99.9% .9 of the time, the people are like, I'm exhausted. And it's because it takes more energy to be somebody who you are not. So the hmm. more authentic Oh, actually, I'm going to put a little caveat on that. The more best authentic self you can be, okay. the more energy you'll have, the better off you'll be. I put that little asterisk on there or that caveat because I'm sure we all know somebody at work where they just go, oh, that's just who I am. You're just going to have to mm. put up with it. Yeah. Well, if you're being a dick, no, people don't have to put up with and they, they shouldn't have to. Yeah. But it's about being your best authentic self puts you in a, in a great position to do your best work. I love that. And yeah, it's definitely an important distinction, isn't it? I think sometimes people can get away with just not being a good person at work under the guise of authenticity. You've worked with heaps of leaders now on this and, and kind of how to develop effective teams. And obviously the leader is, I guess, ultimately responsible for that. With all the leaders you've worked with, is there a common trait you've identified that the best or the most successful effective leaders share? Yeah, I think there's starting to be more of a theme and it's it's around this piece that the leaders that are that are comfortable with saying I don't know the answers to everything. I don't know the best way and I need the team to be part of this process in terms of how we work together and how we get the best outcomes. There's a little bit of humility in that space. There's a bit around, you know, this term of intellectual humility meaning that or the ability for someone to realize that somebody else may have a better answer they may have just have another way of doing things that might not necessarily be better or worse or that you know what that idea i don't really think that's as good as mine but let's give it a go and see what happens i'm seeing with what i would consider the better leaders that they've got that a high level of intellectual humility but then can balance that with when decisions need to be made. Because that's one of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing with, with leadership right now is how do you empower your people, but also when do you jump in to direct or teach versus mm. simply coach and empower? I think right now leaders, they struggle a little bit to go, oh, I can see what could be done or should be done, but I don't want to be that dictator and telling them how to mm. do things. But I think that's all right in certain circumstances. If you've got somebody new in the business or new in a role, sometimes they simply don't know. It's like being at school. They need to be taught how to do things. I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges that I'm seeing right now with leaders. And what does thought leadership mean to you? Oh, it's a good question, Joe. I've, I've, I've got to think about this one. Um, <laughs> when I think about thought leadership, 
I really think it's about expanding the thinking of those who will listen, right? It's about somebody saying or sharing, hey, when it comes to this topic, here's my experience. Here are other experiences. Here's the problem I think there is in this topic. And here are some ways to overcome some of those challenges. I don't think thought leadership necessarily has to be original thinking. Have a listen to a number of thought leaders on a number of different topics. And a lot of them are saying similar things. When you get down to it, if you really double click and open a couple more tabs and get into it, I think for the most part, the basic foundations are similar. But what thought leaders have the ability to do is put their own spin on it, their own experiences, their own personality. And it allows them to get probably a message that people have heard before. Yeah. But it allows it to get through in a different way. And I think sometimes people can hear the same message 20 times. The timing might not be right or just the delivery or the, the way it's shared doesn't quite hit. But all of a sudden you get that right person at the right time with the right message and it can make a massive difference. Joe, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> I'd love to get your perspectives because you're the guru on thought leadership talking to all the, all the different thought leaders. <laughs> what do you think thought leadership is? Yeah, well, look, I'm just a humble thought follower. For me, I think everyone's a thought leader to an extent. I think, you know, you touched on it. It's this idea of the people that will listen. You may be a thought leader for your partner or for your kids or for your team of direct reports at work. You know, it might be on a relatively small scale or a small sphere of influence. But ultimately, if the way that you behave or or the the ideas that you share, the experiences you share, influence one other person to think differently or do something different, then really you are a thought leader. For me, all that then varies is the scale and the reach that you might have. You brought an interesting dimension to it in terms of good thought leadership actually will make people behave in a different way. So it's not just parroting the same message over and over, but actually frame it in a way that leads someone to truly understand it and then go and make a change, do something different because you've, you've framed the message correctly. So that's my take because, you know, I think what we have more than ever now is voices out there, you know, a lot of opinions out there. And as you said, that mm-hmm. they're not all original. I would say by definition, they can't all be original. But for me, what, yeah, what really makes the difference is when action kind of follows as a result of some of those thoughts. So that's... That's my take. It's something I've, I've obviously done a lot of thinking about and, and have consumed a lot of mm. thought leadership content over the years, even sometimes without necessarily realizing that's what it is. So it's, yeah, look, it's a fascinating subject. Do you see yourself as a thought leader? To be honest, I probably hadn't heard the term thought leader until I started doing this type of work. I, I, I knew I wanted mm. to work with motivated leaders and motivated teams to help them make the impact that they could and make a great impact, a positive impact. And then once I got into this and I'm working out how am I going to develop my IP and how, how am I going to get mm. my message across? And then you come across there's organizations that help thought leaders become thought leaders. So if you would have asked me when I started, I would have been like, oh, that sounds like a, a good term to use. It makes me sound pretty switched on. Um, <laughs> so my thought leader, I, I like to think of myself, and this is what I aim to do, is be more of a thought creator particularly in the space of when it comes to working together. We've, you know, as a human race, our survival relies on us working together. So it's nothing new, but we still haven't perfected that. And there's a number of distractions and stresses that make it hard for us. So do I consider myself a thought leader? I'd, I'd go along the lines of a thought creator. 
And also something aligned with what you said is, a, is to, to inspire action. Getting people to think differently is great, but to actually gather those insights they've got and put them to action, that's, that's the stuff that gets me really excited. And that's always what I'm aiming to do. And I love it when, if I'm working with a leadership team in a workshop, or if I'm doing a talk and I see people write things down and always want to have a mosey over and see what resonated with them. And they'll write something down that I've said, but you can see they've added notes about how does that apply to what mm. they're doing. And that's, that's the bit where I go, all right, job ticked because I've given them something to think about, but they're going, how can that help me? So yeah, the term thought leader, if people want to call me that, I've been called a lot worse. So I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, but it's probably more of a thought creator is, is what, what I'm aiming to do. Yeah, okay. I wanted to ask you, in the process of working with leadership teams, how do you define job done or, or you can see that you're moving the dial? So you mentioned that kind of constructive note-taking is one. Are there any other signs you're looking for that tell you you're on the right track? Joe, you've probably hit on one of my... It's not a bear bug, but it's something that I, I struggled with early on when I started mm. doing this. I would go in and do a talk, let's say for a group. And right, a, a talk to me, when someone comes in, you see, hear somebody on stage and they're speaking, it's really there to spark a new idea, right? Yep. It's a challenge to give you something different to think about. And then you finish the talk and then that's it. So you get this buzz out of that and, and people afterwards coming up and we, we talk about different topics, but then that was it. And I'd be like, well, how do I know if I made a difference? Yeah. And I'd want to continue to work with them. And, and some clients we'd continue to work with and others we wouldn't, you know, whether that's because mm. maybe there's no budget for it or they didn't think they needed that support. But I was always like, man, what, so what's happening? Did, did they implement? Yeah. Did anybody do anything that we talked mm. about? I had a great mentor, uh, Miles Callahan, who I worked with in the corporate space and I've stayed in contact with him. And, and I shared this this struggle that I was having with it and, and, and he pointed out, he goes, sometimes that's all people need is a spark, hmm. right? They don't need an inferno unleashed for you to be there and help them through that. Sometimes it's just that little click or that little different way of thinking that, that you sparked. And I think when I th thought about Miles' advice, what I realized was it's a great way to look at it because that's what I want to do. Spark new thinking, help people get through challenges, achieve their potential. And I have to trust that. There's different ways that I do that. So my mm. bear bug with not being able to see what difference I was making, that was more about me and it wasn't about my client. So I think I've just come to realize that there's different ways that I can support and you don't always see the good right away mm. from the work that I do. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Just creating that spark and it's not necessarily going to be your place or your, you won't have the option always to actually take it all the way through you know you as you said creating that new thought is the core so i loved your response to you know this idea thinking of yourself as a thought creator but it sounded as though you're you're probably more comfortable with the term thought leader than some of the guests that i've had on the show do you face imposter syndrome at all yeah i think early on when I did my first talk and it's like, wow, everybody's looking at me mm. and you start to, to understand and see the impact that you can have. Even something as simple as people writing things down or mm. if I get an email from somebody and they say, hey, look, I had a read of 
chapter 14 and you're talking about psychological safety and we did one of the exercises in there and, and it worked really well. It's humbling in that sense. But I think for me, no, I, I don't think the imposter syndrome, but I think this because I, I truly feel this, that this is why I'm here. You know, Simon Sinek, another little bit of a thought leader that, yeah, around the world, absolutely. you know, he often talks about the why. And, you know, a lot of people built off that work and purpose. For me, I feel like I'm in, right now in my life, I am in the sweet spot. I, this is what I meant to be. And I feel quite privileged to A, recognize that, and B, be in a position to do it. So mm. I, th I think the way I look at it is going, I'm where I'm supposed to be and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't had to deal with that imposter syndrome, maybe as much as others, rightfully yeah. or wrongfully. I just think I'm in the right spot and I love what I'm doing. What does that feel like to be doing what you're meant to be doing? I'm sure that's what a lot of people are chasing. How does it feel? For me, Mondays come and like people will roll their eyes and go, oh, you're one of those people. But I love Mondays. <laughs> I love Monday mornings because um, it's when I get to get going again. I was running a workshop last week and, and one of the exercises that we had, uh, that I had the group do was go through your map of life and also then talk about what the future could look like, what you would like it. And, and one of the participants had on there that they had their plan retirement by 50. And it made me think it's like, I actually don't want to retire at 50. I'm having a lot of fun with what I'm doing. There's always new things. Uh, that are happening. I'm meeting new people. There's different challenges coming up. The way thought leaders work, particularly in the digital space and technology, mm. is changing. So it forces me to keep on my toes and make sure, right, what are the new ways that I can engage with different people? So for me, I really love what's what's happening and it's the right thing at the right time. So you talked earlier just about, you had that inkling around 2011, that this was the kind of thing that you wanted to get involved in. And I think lots of us have some of those inklings, millions of, I'm certainly never short of ideas on what else I could be doing for 40, you know, 50 hours a week. How do you go from that, this inkling to then actually following that through and, and confirming, you know, 12 years later that this is it, this is where I want to be right now. How does that process unfold? If I look back to what were the ingredients or, or the steps that I took, I think all of us have that, well, let's call it that inner voice, something telling you, ooh, this is what you should be doing. You and I are probably similar that there's probably a few things that we're mm. being told what we should do. But I think one, it's trusting in that voice and believing in it. And so that's easy to say, so what do you do with that? I'm a huge, huge fan of writing things down. In 2011, when I had this, I was like, man, I need to be doing this, I need, I need to get get into this, that's my calling, what am I gonna do? I made this PowerPoint presentation for nobody but me that outlined what I wanted to be doing, when I was gonna do it by, and some really specifics like by the end of 2012, I've created my own program and I've delivered in six, in each capital city across Australia. Now this is at a time I was working in a corporate space, HR hadn't approached me yet, mm. and I thought that's just, that's in an ideal world, that's what I'd be doing. Then when HR approached me and they said, we need you to develop this program, well, guess what? It also had to be delivered in each of the capital yeah. cities across Australia. And I, thought, I just thought something was telling me something at that stage. Yeah. And yeah. so I think there's that power of writing things down. And then mm. at some stage, look, I've talked to some people and they start, you know, the side hustle on the side and then it grows. If that works for them, I, th I think that's a good way to go about it. 
my experience was I thought if I'm not putting 100% into this, then will I really be giving it its, its justice? And my approach was it like, all right, let's stop what I'm doing and let's jump into this and, and give it a red hot go. So there's this bit around, it probably comes back to some of that advice that I was giving the kids is, is back yourself. Hmm. You mentioned it might've been a few ideas floating around in your head with different things you could be doing. Did you have any false starts or wrong turns? Like, How did you know this was it? Was it a bit of trial and error? If I were to identify any, any false starts or trial and error, it would have been that I waited so long to do this. Okay. In some ways, I wish I would have started earlier, but for whatever reason, this is when I did. When I've got into this and doing working with leadership teams and writing the book, now as I'm thinking about it again, what's the false turn? My book, I wish I would have started writing six months earlier. Okay. I put that off. I thought, how am I going to write a book? Why well, have I never written a book? How, how do you start? <laughs> Who's going to listen to me? Right? Maybe there's mm. the imposter syndrome coming through. But you have to start somewhere. So I started talking to different people who had done it. Uh, yeah. My brother-in-law's friend, he was saying, Adrian, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know, Cole. Thanks. So I just asked him, I said, how did you start? And then he pointed me in the direction of an organization who helps you capture and identify what your IP is. Okay. So it was taking that next step and then it was diving mm -hmm. into that. So it's, it's really, you know, it's cliche, but it really is just going, what's the next step I can take and do it yeah. sooner than later. So that feeling you're, you know, you're in the right place. You're doing what you were put here to do. Does that mean every day is a great day? It's funny. I've got a whoop band you know, that measures mm -hmm. all these different health measurements. And one of the, the things that you can track is something along is around how, how much did you fulfill your purpose? I would say 85, 90% of the time, I'm giving it strong. But it doesn't mean that there's things that I struggle with. I think what I've learned over these last six months particularly is I've got to get better at treating what I do like a business. So, you know, the old standard of working on the business than in the business. If I can work on the business, I'll be able to make a bigger difference, bigger impact. I can have better programs, new programs that come out. And there are certain tasks that I need to do that I've just put off and I don't do them. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, mm. so um, <laughs> this is going to sound odd from a writer, but doing social media and EDMs, I like doing it, but it takes me a long time. And if I've got a priority list, I'm like, well, that's going to take too long. I'll just skip that for today. So yeah. there's, there's a number of things that I've just, I will put off. Doesn't necessarily mean that I have a bad day, but it just means mm. that the things that need to get done sometimes don't happen. And I've got to be, <laughs> I've got to get a little more disciplined and better at how to make those things yeah. happen. That's really interesting. Cause I, I feel as though certainly a lot of people that I talk to just, you know, in social circles are, are looking for that calling the classic anecdote of if you find something you love doing you never work a day in your life i feel like a lot of people possibly more than ever are chasing that sensation so it's interesting to talk to you as someone who's kind of found that and maybe to hear that it doesn't mean life's perfect because i certainly know for myself i can get caught up in trying to chase some kind of feeling or some kind of thing that will trigger this like i arrive at this destination called happiness i'd say definitely it doesn't actually work that way so it's really interesting to hear your your take on that I mentioned before, I think everybody kind of has the, have these callings or these voices that are saying, go down this path, go down this path. What's yours telling you? The interesting thing for me is I feel like I've tried almost everyone. <laughs> I studied civil engineering and commerce at uni. 
because I had the marks to kind of do that stuff and a lot of my mates were doing it. Went to work in civil engineering, then I went and played sport overseas. I've worked in recruitment, I've worked in medical research, I've worked in sports marketing for quite a while. I've worked in government. I started a side hustle, like a LinkedIn side hustle, a bit of podcasting. Like I feel as though I've been searching for that calling essentially my whole career. The thing that I always say to myself is like, I'm not sure that there's anything in the world I want to be doing 40 hours a week every week. Like even if that was playing golf, going for a surf, being with my kids or, or my wife, it's something I'm really struggling with. What's that balance? What's the picture of that happy life, I guess? You know, I am happy in life day to day, but particularly from a work side of things, what do I want to be doing, you know, for the rest of my life, so to speak? that will feel like a calling, that will fulfill me, that will, you know, leave me energized. I haven't found the answer yet. I can't remember the study, but there's a study done around purpose. And out of the study, they, it was one of these pieces of research that look at dozens, if not hundreds of different pieces of research. And they bring them all together. And what are the key findings? And, and one of the things that they found around purpose is that there's different ways to derive it. I think there was five, but off the top of my head, I can only think of two of them or maybe three one is that you get inspired by somebody else the other one is you have that feeling that calling and the other one is about choice and something when i'm working with with clients on a one-on-one -on -one, they're like oh i don't really know what my next step is at work you know because what do i want to be doing in 10 or 15 years or you mentioned before your whole life man that's a long time and there's so much that yeah, can change hmm. i often ask them to kind of zoom in a little bit like let's zoom into the next 12 months What's something now you know that you're enjoying and and what could you do? What's one step that you can take to get closer to that and see what that does for you? Hearing your story, it's quite inspiring because you've tried a number of different things. You didn't feel obliged to stick with something. I went to university, same as you. I studied commerce with finance and marketing. And so what do you do with that? You go get a job. And I got a job with ExxonMobil in Canada. And... Um, I felt, well, that's what I got to do because I did, that's what I did my degree in. And yeah. I did that for 20 years before I made yeah. the decision to go, right, actually, mm. I'm going to try something else that's more aligned with what I think is right. So don't discount your journey and the things that you've done because it takes a lot of courage for that. And the fact that you're, you're willing to try different things as you continue to search at some stage, you're going to find something that's going to work for you at that time. Yeah. No, thank you, Adrian. It's it's um that's good insight. Like, I think probably one other aspect to it is, and I use the term with you, you know, this idea of a false start. And maybe there isn't such a thing as a false start. Maybe you're just you're trying something else and and learning throughout that process. Yeah, it's something I'm trying to kind of play back to myself more often. Of like, I've I have done all these different things or this you know real breadth of experience that adds up to a unique kind of package i guess a unique set of life experiences and skills that yeah one day will lead me to that thing whatever that that calling might be or kind of yeah the right choice turning the spotlight back on you <laughs> um <laughs> why, <laughs> you did that well there so one thing i like to ask every guest is who's one thought leader that you follow that we should all be following and why there's a, a gentleman named ben zander so okay. I, I use his material in some of my workshops. He's written the book called The Art of Possibilities. At the risk of insulting Ben, he's probably, I'm going to guess, high 60s. He's a conductor, I think, at the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And 
so his book is called The Art of Possibilities. And you can, if you go on YouTube, uh, look for the video, How to Give an A. And his perspective on life and his thought leadership around mindset. Uh, he talks about upward and downward spirals versus possibilities. He is somebody who I, I highly recommend. If there's anything that any of your listeners would do is get onto YouTube, Google how to give an A, Ben Zander. And I think the video is 18 minutes. I've probably watched that video 65 times. And yeah. every time I watch that video, there's something new that comes out of it. He's inspired me. And I, I just, if, if you could just take one or two things from hearing him speak, you'll be, mm. you'll be well off. Okay. So a couple of more things I'd love to get more on a practical level. Your job, you know, day in, day out is to get up on stage in front of groups or work work amongst groups and present and, as you say, like create new thoughts. And key to the success or any impact of that is that they trust that you know what you're talking about, that you can get your message through and deliver something that resonates. What tips would you give to someone who's trying to do that, who's trying to present better in groups, whether it's be a better public speaker or or actually have their message make more impact? What advice would you give? My advice, and it, it probably goes back to something that Ben Zander talks about. This is about, so if the question is around when working with a group of people, how, how to make impact with them and how to make a difference for them. Ben talks about how as, as the conductor of the orchestra, when, you know, when they're performing, he's like, the conductor does not say a word. You know, and he does all these funny moves that a conductor does like that. But he goes, nobody says a word. And when working with groups, I think that's the one piece of advice I would give is that you do not have to be the one sharing all the information, coming up with all the answers. When I'm working with groups, I like to say I'm like a Google map, right? The people know where they want to get to, hmm. but there's probably three or four different routes that can take you there, depending on the context, how quickly, what, are the, what else is happening around, around them right then. So when working with groups, and trying to spark new ways of thinking, don't feel like you have to be the one to do all the inspiration. You don't have to share, have all the ideas. Find ways, ask them questions. Because the reality is, this was my experience in working in corporate, was a lot of times we don't have time to think. We, we've got emails to respond to. You've got MS Teams to respond to. You've got back-to-back-to-back to back meetings. Uh, if you're working in global organizations, you're doing meetings at crazy times because Australia is usually a, a smaller part of the broader business. So then you have to do meetings at times that suit them. There's just so much going on that rarely do people have the time to actually stop, pause, press mute on everything else and actually just give their brains the opportunity to do what it does really well is, is think uh, a dream, come up with new ways and, and, and create a, a brighter vision or future of what that could look like and then think about how can we achieve that. So, yeah. Um, did public speaking always come naturally to you? I think I was always comfortable. Well, not, not always. I can remember in high school going to be house captain and I would never win. And I thought it was because I was a crap speaker and that was probably one of the reasons. Um, I can remember in corporate taking a couple, you know, speaking how to present and how to public speak. And there's always a couple tips there. I think where I gained my confidence was through coaching sport. So at, at a young age, I'm going to say when I was 19 or 20, I started coaching baseball. 
and it was just a group of 14 year olds. I was fascinated by how, how excited they would get when myself and my buddy Tom would coach them. And we both loved it. So we put lots into it. And I think that's, we were presenting probably in a 10, 11, 12 players who were 13, 14 years old. They wouldn't know if you stuffed up and it probably didn't matter if you did anyways. So I think I got comfortable in speaking in front of people in that sense. And then I think from some of the courses that I did as well, you know, the, 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 the powerful or the impact of storytelling. Mm. So, you know, I was quite intentional about that. And then I just think it comes through experience. If I want to learn how to kick a footy ball, I'm terrible at it, but it's because I don't spend any time doing it. Mm. I suspect if I put an hour a week at kicking a footy goal, I, I might be able to actually put one through the uprights. Yeah. So for someone like me who's not a natural speaker or public speaker, let's say, doesn't feel comfortable in front of a group, aside from getting the reps in, getting the practice, what's what's the other kind of best tip that you would give someone public speaking? Well, look, for me, when I, when I get in front of people, I still get nervous at times, but I've got a, a standard start. So anybody mm-hmm. who's seen me speak two or three times, I've got a pretty standard opening. The kickoff, and I'll apologize to people in the room if they've they've heard my joke, so or whatever it might be that I'm that I'm going to kick off with. So for me, it's about getting a good start. The other thing is, and I saw this on there's a TED talk. I think it was Andrew Stanton who Pixar. So you think of the guys that that produced mm. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, those franchises of videos. He did a TED talk, and it was, it was a great TED talk, and it was about the power of knowing your story and being able to share it. But here's this guy, Hollywood producer, doing mm. a TED Talk when it was just TED. There wasn't any TEDxes, so it was a pretty big deal. Mm. And he looked at the teleprompter numerous times. Like, I remember at one stage counting how many times he looked. But you know what? It didn't take away from his message. His stories were good. He was speaking passionately. It, it blended really well. And I thought, you know what? Who cares if you have to refer back yeah. to your notes? Or mm. to have some cheat cheats or, or even just holding your piece of paper with your reminders of what you want to talk about. In a way, there's no right or wrong way to get your message across. I think if it's authentic, that's the most powerful thing that you can do. Yeah, I love that. So we talked a, a while ago kind of at the top of the show on performance energy and how important it is to kind of nail that. What do you do to optimize your performance energy day to day? I've got a couple non-negotiables that have been working pretty well for me for the last couple of years. I'll kick off four out of the seven days of the week by going to the gym. I do group classes. If I have to do it on my own, yeah. I I won't get out of bed. I tried that for a while and it just, it, it would be good for two or three weeks and then it would wane off. I That's probably the extrovert side of me is that I get energy from others. So I know for me, exercise is good, but I have to do it with people. So I'll, I'll hit the gym. And then breakfast for me is a big one. Anybody who's on Instagram that follows me there, they know what my breakfast is because every morning I'll take a shot of it. And it's not so much to share my food, but I like saying good morning to everybody okay. out there. And my wife gives me a hard time. She says, why are you always showing people what you have <laughs> breakfast? But I say, it's a way for me to connect and just wish everybody a good day. But for me, having like my breakfast, muesli, blueberries, almonds, pepita nuts, and some yogurt. That's my way to kick off the day. There's some good protein in there. Um, it's a good slow-burning food um, that will give me energy, you know, till mid-morning, late in the day, or closer to lunch. So those are probably the two from a physical side. And then yeah. for me, I really get a lot from the inner energy from doing this 
you know, the, the work that I do, but also yeah. uh, baseball has been a big part of my life. So I'm very involved with the sport. To me, that's that's something that gives me energy. I put a lot into it, but I feel I get a lot more out of it. So those are probably a couple examples of my non-negotiables, the things that give me energy. Yeah, I love that idea of non-negotiables in your day. I think the other one that I heard a while ago was in a work context, like what's going to be your one thing that mm. is part of your work routine? If that's, you know, leaving early on Thursday to pick up the kids or it's starting late on Monday to get a workout, you know, like whatever it is, finding that one thing or your non-negotiable that forms part of your routine. I love that what's way yours, of thinking. Joe? Well, I was just thinking, I was looking out the window just wondering, what is mine? At the moment, it, it does revolve around the kids. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and so oh, wow. starting the morning kind of, yeah, like it's full on. But, you know, starting the morning as a family for me has been one of the biggest upsides of, of work from home is we're not trying to just throw everyone's clothes on and get them to daycare as soon as we possibly can to get on a train. That really helps, you know, everyone piles into into bed whenever they wake up and it's family time together to start the day. And then, you know, working through breakfast and the, the struggles and negotiations of getting mm. toddlers dressed and out the door. <laughs> um, but that, that kind of family piece is how we start the day every day. And so working towards doing that as often as we can, I think definitely gets us going. Oh, I love it. Because and you just think about the impact, it'll probably create an impact that you've got, you won't be able to see, mm. right? Just that your children get to experience that with their parents. They get that love, they get that fun to kick off in certain ways. Um, you obviously get something out of it, but I think it's a great example of a non-negotiable that benefits you, but also is gonna make a massive impact on others. Yeah, let's hope so. It's one thing I, I think about regularly is how am I going? Like as a dad, you know, as parents, as a dad, as a, as an employee, and all that kind of stuff. You know, how are we going? But I think you're right. You don't always see the impact that you're having. You just kind of have to trust that it'll be there. Adrian, look, it was it was really good fun talking to you today. Thank you for coming on the show. For all our listeners, you you very generously. Um, made an offer for a, a free copy of your your book teams that swear by each other so for that one uh, if you want to access it i'll share the link to adrian's website the promo code you can use is swear by joe uh, with an e on the end joe and you can grab a free copy of of adrian's ebook adrian thanks so much for joining the show it was was great to chat right on joe i loved having the chat too and then we're looking forward to seeing uh, the next adventure which which thing you're going to try next? This, this might be, it sounds like you're onto something pretty good right now. <laughs> Thanks, Adrian. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, the best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.